Welcome to Wild Connection, the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Vertolin, but you can just call me Dr. Jen. I'm a scientist and author that studies animal behavior. I'm passionate about animals, and I love helping people reconnect with nature to live better lives. This podcast is about you, other animals, and how we are connected in this crazy, wild thing called life. You can get the show notes and more on my website, jenniferverdelin.com. If you like my show, please subscribe to it so you never have to miss an episode. Hey everybody, it's Easter for some people, so I thought we could celebrate with some fun facts about rabbits before getting to my guest. I'm going to stick to anatomy because our topic today is all about bones and muscles that make us tick and twitch. Speaking of twitching, rabbits are known for their wiggly noses. Now, it doesn't just wiggle for the fun of it. When rabbits twitch their nose, millions of scent receptors are awakened, and the faster it twitches, the better they are at discriminating between different smells. And that's not the most interesting thing about rabbits. You know, I've talked about teeth many times on this podcast, and rabbits have 28 of them, not just those two ever-growing front ones we're all familiar with. All these teeth let them work on grass, bark, and other delectables. These teeth are paired with seriously strong jaws to grind up all that food. And believe me, you do not want to get bit by a rabbit. It'll hurt. Perhaps the most spectacular aspect of rabbit anatomy, in my humble opinion, is their digestion. It's pretty nifty. So imagine a rabbit out there in the world munching on some grass. Like you and me, once it swallows the grass, it goes into the stomach. Lots of what they eat gets broken down by some enzymes that allow important nutrients to get absorbed. Doesn't sound too different. But they also have a tough time breaking down fiber and this gets sent to the colon. Still, not so different, yet. It's here where things get interesting in the colon, because not all of the fiber is sent out of the body as poop. Big stuff is, but other stuff, the smaller, digestible bits of fiber, get rerouted to a place called the cecum, where they spend some time there. In this special place, bacteria help ferment the fiber to make it more digestible. Then where does it go? Well, back to the colon, where it's excreted, but this time not as poop, instead as a yummy coated cicatrope, which the rabbit promptly pops back into its mouth to eat, allowing it to squeeze every drop of digestible nutrients out of its food. Rabbits and other animals, including humans, have a slew of interesting adaptations to their anatomy. Though to be honest, I'm kind of glad evolution didn't pressure us to have a digestive system like the bunny. If you've been listening for a while, you know I have a fascination with bones. In fact, I have a rabbit cooking in a bush. Now, I want to explain that. The rabbit got run over by a car, and I'm interested in its bones. So I tucked it under a bush, and I'm just waiting until nature runs its course gobbling up all the muscles and tendons and ligaments so that all that's left are the bones. The reality is, though, I know so little about bones. That's about to change, because this week's guest is in the know about bones, muscles, how they work, and how they shape what we and other animals can do. Dr. Jason Organ is an associate professor of anatomy, cell biology, and physiology at the Indiana School of Medicine, where his research examines how the structure of bone and muscle influences how they work. He's also the host of the Science Night podcast, an exceptional podcast, and not just because I was on it a while back. He's also the co-editor of the Science Communication blog at the Public Library of Science. So let's dive in to everything you wanted to know about bones and muscles and how they work together. Hey everybody, I'm so excited to welcome Jason Organ to the show. Some of you may have heard my interview with him on his own podcast, Science Night, and now I am thrilled to have him as a guest to talk about his research. Welcome to the show. 
Hello, Jen. So nice to see you again. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I, you know, this is, uh, you know, we connected over whale belly buttons. It's true. Uh, and um, and hopefully we're going to be able to um, do a show together about whale belly buttons. But that is the fascinating world of Twitter, isn't it? It is. No, it's very true. Whale. Who knew that whale belly buttons could bring people together who actually have similar backgrounds and didn't know one another prior to that? You know, it's pretty I, cool. I know. Yes, it's very exciting. And we'll leave the mystery of the whale belly button there hanging for everyone. One of the reasons, aside from kind of all of the science communication work that you do, and we're going to talk about that uh, later on, you know, I've been fascinated to have the opportunity to talk to different scientists and, and so they're meeting you and, and, and getting to learn a little bit about you. I'm really curious about how scientists get to where they're, where they are and how they study the things that they study. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about who you are and how you came to be and what you do and, and how you got there. Sure. Happy to. I don't really know how I would describe myself anymore because I wear so many different hats. But when I was getting my start, I would say that my interest was really rooted in our evolutionary past and how the human body evolved. And uh, so with that sort of as the background noise to all the things that were going on in my head, um, I ended up, you know, sort of coming up through the ranks of the functional anatomy world. Um, so I was interested in sort of how do we interpret fossils? And how can we make our interpretations of fossils even better by looking at living animal anatomy? And so I really, you know, focused on on comparative anatomy and uh, of bone and muscle in particular, um, as we sort of trace different lineages through time. So that makes sense because you have a background in anthropology. I do. Yes. So that's where my my interest in human evolution sort of started. Um, and it was an interesting story because you know, evolution, or uh, sorry, rather anthropology is a four field discipline. And so those fields are uh, cultural anthropology, biological anthropology, archaeology, and then linguistics. And they're all interested in the human condition, what makes us human. But the biological side of it is fundamentally different and has just a different language than the rest of the discipline. And so what I found was that, you know, when I would hang around with um, graduate students in the program. Um, I, so I have a master's in anthropology, an undergraduate degree as well. But when I was hanging around with the graduate students and we were, you know, talking about what we're working on, I like we had a hard time communicating with one another. This is actually where the roots of my interest in science communication started too. And I realized that the reason we didn't have a lot to talk about or had trouble understanding one another was because the things that I was interested in are fundamentally different than the things that they were interested in. So we were all interested in sort of what makes us human, but not for me, it wasn't the humanity of it. It was what, what evolutionary um, adaptations did our, did our bodies produce as we became more human-like. Um, I didn't care as much about culture. Now that was at that time, I think <laughs> culture is fascinating, right? This is not a knock on anthropology. It's just that was not the, those were not the questions that were driving me. The questions that were driving me were rooted in, in anatomy and biomechanics and physics. And so, uh, you know, that's how I ended up doing comparative anatomy later on down the road. And so again, it's all with this idea that I want to understand what's going on, uh, in the past, or at least that was the, the original impetus for my research, um, which has changed a bit, but you know, how do we, make our interpretations of the past better by using information from the present. Well, you know, that's interesting because I, I don't know why I've never thought about adaptations, you know, biomechanical or physical adaptations that humans have that make us, you know, human. And so now I'm just curious, are there certain things that you can share that, that make us decidedly human from a physical evolutionary perspective or biomechanically, you know, is there something that really sets us apart? Because we're always looking right for the thing that makes us special, the mm -hmm. thing that makes us unlike any other species. And is there, is there something physically that really sets us apart? There are things that set us apart from other members of our own order, the primates, right? But primates themselves are set apart from other mammals based on, you know, certain characteristics too. And so it really is a matter of scale. What, what time period are we talking? How long ago do you want to know 
sort of what has made us uniquely human? Are we talking, um, you know, a reduced sense of smell and a focus on our vision? Because if that's what we're talking about, we're talking about early on in the primate radiation. So that doesn't set us apart as human, but it certainly sets us up to be human. But if we're talking about sort of what sets humans apart from the rest of their closest living relatives, the chimpanzees and bonobos, it's really um, an ex a further expansion of our brain size, a change in the way that we walk around. So instead of using four limbs in a knuckle walking way, we walk upright. Um, and that has come with it uh, a whole or brought with it a whole bunch of, of adaptations in the pelvis and spine that are required in order to be able to walk around like that and not topple over. And so those are things that are uniquely human. But then if you look even further down the line here, right, it looked even closer to us modern humans, um, you know, the way that we grip things has changed in the human fossil record. And so precision grips have changed from, you know, early Australopithecus, um, which, you know, would be like anywhere from like six to six million to like, you know, one and a half million years ago. And, and then the change to the, the genus that we're part of, um, Homo. And so the way that we gripped things um, is reflected in the differences in the, the stone tools that were made. And so, you know, there's really fascinating things. I have sort of meandered away from those particular questions because I found them to be too difficult to decide upon what time period was most important, right? To me, bigger scale issues, um, sort of how does bone and muscle work together to change shape and then change function because of that shape change became much more interesting to me. Not to say that the human fossils aren't totally fascinating, but it's not what I do much anymore of. Yeah, well, and there've been in the last like maybe 10 years, there've been some new discoveries of human fossils that have really, you know, upended some of our fundamental understanding of human evolution. But as I listened to you talk and you said grip, I'm thinking I, I want to I'm I, now I'm going to always think about how am I gripping something? And I have, you know, I'm, I'm left handed, but only uh, I can only do precision uh, movements or precision, you know, uh, fine motor movements with my left hand and my right hand is those big ones, you know, mm -hmm. I used to weight tables and I could only carry a heavy tray on my right. And I could only pour water with my left. If I, I attempted it. to swap, then somebody would have water in their lap and food all over the floor. Um, and so anyway, I was just thinking as I was listening to you talk, like, you know, all those sort of smaller differences and smaller changes that have really uh, impact our day to day lives that we don't even think about. Um, for sure. For sure. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things I really like about you is that your work has covered everything from humans and primates to mice and marmots. And, mm -hmm. you know, and you just mentioned how certain questions uh, became sort of less interesting, not that they're not interesting, but you became more uh, focused on, on bone and muscle and how they work together to shape things. So how do you decide, you know, what you investigate? How do you decide your trajectory for research questions? That is a really great question. And it's actually kind of twofold. The answer is twofold um, in the sense that like, I kind of diverged away from the human evolution aspect of things um, earlier on in my graduate career. So my PhD work was all on on tails of monkeys. Um, and, you know, I'm happy to talk about monkey tails because they're really cool. Uh, but I had already sort of started moving away from the human side of things. Um, at that point, because I was more interested in sort of broader scale adaptation, right? So um, in particular, the monkeys that I was looking at, um, I was looking at tails that could grasp called prehensile tails and, and tails that could not grasp non-prehensile tails. And there's another category in there in between that some people have called semi-prehensile, um, meaning that it can, you know, partially grasp but in my opinion like either you can do it or you can't do it and so i sort of doesn't now has never really made a whole lot of sense to me and as a functional term but it certainly makes sense in terms of an evolutionary reflection of where that adapt adaptation came into play um, but there you know monkeys are not the only animals that can do this there are so many different animals that have prehensile tails um, i think it's involved in mammals alone like 14 different times in like i don't know over 10 genera so it's like you know pretty widespread. And that those numbers 
may be wrong. Uh, that's a little out of date now, I think. Um, and, you know, with regard to changes in taxonomy, right, who knows if those numbers are even close to realistic anymore. But the point of that is that there are so many animals that can grasp with tails and they didn't evolve one time, right? It's evolved many, many times. Even within primates, it's evolved twice. Okay. So it's evolved twice in, um, in neotropical mon monkeys, right? Central and South American monkeys. Um, but it's evolved nowhere else in in primates, right? But two two different times in the same you know groups that are are living um, sympatrically or in the same place, right? Yeah. Um, so it's a fascinating question as to why. Um, I don't know that we have the real why, but there are many hypotheses as as to sort of what led to it, and it was you know primarily probably rooted in changes in forest structure. All of that is to say, um, I became interested in those big questions. Um, as a grad student, but that is different than how do I decide what I'm going to study now? Yes. And um, that change happened when I moved my lab from St. Louis University, where I had gotten my first faculty position to Indiana University. And, and it was because uh, when I was at St. Louis U, I was allowed to, I was able to have an, a non-funded research program, and that was perfectly acceptable within the constraints of the, the role that I had. And if it was funded, great. It was funded while I was there, which was fantastic. Moving to uh, Indiana University, the stakes were a little bit higher in terms of what they would accept as funding uh, to, you know, for the laboratory, because lab space is at a premium here compared to where it was in the role that I was in at St. Louis U. So I had to sort of transition to questions that could be answered with NIH money, not NSF money. Right. And so, you know, I don't know how many of your listeners know that the sort of difference between funding uh, approaches between the National Science Foundation on the one hand and the National Institutes of Health on the other, but very briefly, um, the NSF will fund science for discovery sake Yes. in any realm. It doesn't really matter as long as it doesn't relate specifically or entirely to human health. And that's because the National Institutes of Health um, and that broad umbrella funds uh, research that will help our nation with health issues. Um, there are also different ways that, that they structure their grants. So like, for example, NSF will fund a, pro a project, but won't fund a program, a mm -hmm. research program, whereas NIH they're funding, you have a lot more flexibility with what you spend that money on, as long as it's all working toward similar answers or, or questions that are related to the uh, original intent of the proposed research. And so that's really important. So I have actually transitioned sort of more toward the biomedical realm, because it allows me more flexibility to one, answer questions that are of, of you know, interest to human health, like, how do we understand, how do we better understand um, osteoporosis? Or in particular in my lab, we've been working on uh, a disease called brittle bone disease. Mm -hmm. um, the technical name is osteogenesis imperfecta. Uh, but the idea in this bone disease is that um, the collagen that makes up bone partially um, doesn't assemble properly. And so the bones are really fragile and they break really easily and it's genetic. And so, you know, kids are affected a lot. And that tugged at my heartstrings. And I got really interested in, the, in that because of that. And that's an interesting story too. I'm happy to, to talk about that if you want to later. Yes. Um, but the answer to your question is really like, because I'm working on questions now that I have a little more flexibility to use money, grant money to, to, to investigate, I'm able to continue to answer big picture questions about adaptation in bone and muscle using models that I've created or co-opted from other um, labs to understand osteogenesis imperfecta and how we can better treat that. So it's really like the best of all worlds because of that. That's fascinating. And I do want to talk about osteo imperfecta, osteogenesis. Osteo, osteogenesis imperfecta. It's a big one. We could just call it OI is what the- <laughs> OI? There you go. Okay. So it's, it's really interesting because my- approach has been really different, having had no funding, neither from NSF or NIH. <laughs> I sort of go, huh, I'm curious about this. How much is it going to cost for me to figure out a way to answer that question mm -hmm. and, you know, and put it together a shoestring 
Uh, and, and I know the listeners, I, I don't want to, you know, get too deep in the weeds on grant funding, but, but this is the reality for, for science and, mm-hmm. and, and investigation by scientists is that many rely, if not most rely on government funding or foundation funding. If there's a particular foundation, for example, that might be interested in OI and, and sponsoring research that can look towards how you treat it or how you might be able to cure it you know, then that's the sources of money. And and so a lot of times people's research programs are tailored to ways that will get them funding. Mm-hmm. And since, you know, I, uh, I don't know, most of the things I'm interested in don't cost very much. It would be really hard for me to justify large grant sizes from, you know, NSF or, you know, I, I like, I need like $10,000 to do an owl pellet study. You know, that's, that's mm-hmm. not NSF worthy. And, and so, but at the same time, it means that I've sort of just kind of wandered, you know, it's not quite a random walk, but I've wandered through topics that I'm like, oh, that's fascinating. I wonder why that's happening. I wonder if this is true. And, and so I've enjoyed that part because I haven't felt kind of any kind of constraint uh, on what I can kind of decide to look at. So I, before we get back to some of the other animal models, since you brought up uh, OI or brittle bone disease, I've heard of that and it's supposedly really rare. Yes, it's a very rare disease. And so because of that, it doesn't get a lot of funding thrown toward it, right? I mean, that's one yes. of the big issues is that if it's not a problem that, that a lot of uh, Americans experience, the NIH is not going to put um, as much of a proportion of their budget toward it. And understandably so. Sure. That doesn't lessen, though, the um, impact on the individuals who have it. And so, um, there, you know, to your point earlier, there is an OI foundation um, that does, you know, seed grants, but it's very minimal money. And it's usually for early career folks who they're really trying to, you know, bring into the field because there aren't enough people looking at osteogenesis imperfecta or at least not enough to make um, significant, huge changes. One of the problems is this. There is no FDA-approved gold standard treatment for OI. Um, There's just not a drug that's approved for it. So so what typically happens is that the off-label use of osteoporosis drugs is what is being used to treat it. And osteoporosis drugs come in sort of two kinds. Um, There are ones that are anabolic, so they build bone. And there are ones that are anti-catabolic. And what that means is that they prevent bone from breaking down. Osteoporosis drugs are are split between the two, but the ones that most people are familiar with are the ones that stop bone from breaking down. Uh, Because the idea with osteoporosis is that you're losing bone at a disproportionately high rate compared to um, someone else of your age group. And so you want to minimize the loss of bone by stopping the turnover of bone. Um, And bone is a really dynamic tissue. I mean, it's constantly changing itself to, you know, reflect changes in ground conditions, right? Inside the the tissue itself. So every time you walk, for example, you break your bones microscopically and cells come in, eat out those cracks and those are called osteoclasts, so bone-consuming um, cells. And then osteoblasts, bones that build bone, come in and fill that back in and make new bone. And so, you know, it's constantly happening. Anti- I have no catab- idea. Oh, yeah, it's totally wait, cool. Wait, wait, this wait. Is- I, I thought your bone is just your bone is your bone. And and that's basically it. And that the only way you you break your bone if you don't have this condition is, you know, a severe injury that snaps the bone but, and that, you know, I do know that big bones like a femur can heal within eight weeks, like a Mm -hmm, a, a break can heal really quickly. But so what you're saying is similar to what happens to muscles, right? When you work out and you lift weights, you get micro tears in your muscles Mm -hmm. and then all kinds of things that I don't know the names of come in (laughs) and fix that and you build muscle over time. So are you saying that the average person, even if they're past, you know, full development, um, continues to build bone over time? Yes and no. Um, so let's unpack the question a little bit, right? So, um, building bone is one thing, you know, to increase your bone mass is one thing to maintain your bone mass and to maintain the integrity of the tissue is a different issue. Okay. And, um, so we, 
our largest capacity for building bone happens before puberty, you know, sort of that early growth and development phase of childhood. Um, And so the recommendations for like high impact exercises, which are known to really spur bone building um, are, you know, are geared toward folks that are, are still growing. Right. Um, Once you reach, you know, puberty, you're pretty much built done building new bone. And now you have, you have to worry about maintaining that bone. Osteoporosis happens in people who are much older, right? And so they're done building their bone. Instead, they're trying to, uh, the drugs are, are, they are designed really to try to help them maintain what they have. So you could have an anabolic steroid, um, for example, parathyroid hormone is one that's used quite frequently in osteoporosis, and that will help build some bone, but it's only because you've got high turnover in your bone already, right? And so it's yeah. just basically... Um, it's like the the Red Queen hypothesis, right? Like the Red Queen from Alice in Wonderland is running yes. and running and running, right? Trying to chase Alice and Alice is running and running and running, but they don't get any further apart from one another or any closer. They're just maintaining that distance. It's basically, uh, it's basically an arms race, right? And yes. that's what's happening in osteoporosis. So the, the anabolic drugs, the drugs that are going to build bone are just doing it well enough to stop the high breakdown from being too catastrophic. So all of that is to say the best way to target someone with OI and build better bone is when they're really young, but the best exercises for OI, or I'm sorry, the best exercises for building bone are high impact, which is detrimental to, to, you know, individuals who have OI. And this actually led me to a really cool project that I can fund with money from any source uh, and have uh, that allows me to continue to look at these large scale adaptation questions while still investigating a biomedical question. And uh, it's this experiment that um, I, I borrowed from my colleague, um, Craig Byron at Mercer University. Um, and he's been really generous with his time and held my hand through this whole thing, which is fantastic. He's a really great collaborator. And I just want to say, hi, Craig, if you're listening, uh, man, I couldn't be more appreciative of this. Anyway, we write, we raise mice now in simulated fine branch arboreal environments. This was his idea. The earliest primates um, were mouse sized and they were evolving from an animal stock that was a terrestrial animal, but primates are arboreal. We live in trees, right? Humans are weird um, in that regard, right? And so are, you know, the rest of the apes, or at least the African great apes, because they spend less time in trees than say orangutans, Asian apes, right? Yes. But so gorillas and chimps, bonobos are all on the ground more, um, and humans are on the ground more than any other primate. And, uh, and that's important um, because our environment is very different. So the idea here is that you know, we've adapt, adapted our, our modes of locomotion to best suit where we're living. And so you know, we're walking around on two limbs now because we're not in trees all the time. And it's beneficial to us to be able to see up over grasslands or, or whatever hypothesis of the day you want to talk about, you know, sort of why we became. It doesn't really matter why. The fact is we are. Yes. And that actually comes with a whole suite of like biomedical problems, right? Like lower back pain and, and, you know, difficult childbirth that, um, that other primates don't have other mammals don't have those questions are important, but you know, they're not going to help us, um, sort of understand how the earliest primates started to work has started, you know, moving. And so Craig came up with this idea that if he took mice that are terrestrially adapted. I mean, they're very good climbers, but they are terrestrial animals for the most part, at least your garden variety laboratory mouse, right? Yes. And raise them in an environment where they were traversing really fine wires that were like fine branches and they were at weird, odd angles to one another and they couldn't live on the ground. They had to live all the time grasping onto these wires that you might be able to see adaptation because bone is plastic enough because it could turn over so much that you could see that within the span of a lifetime. And he found that when he raised mice from um, just post weaning. So about 21 days to about four months of age in these enclosures that he could get them to develop an opposable big toe, right? That, that they would change the shape of the bones in their big toe so that it would grasp better onto these wires. And that was within the lifespan of a single individual. We're not even talking about evolutionary change. We're talking about just the plasticity of bone being high enough that they, you know, it adapts to what we're doing. 
Another good example in humans actually is that we have an angle of our knee where our femur, our thigh bone sort of um, angles outward from our hips and inward toward our knees. So that way we can keep our knees under our center of mass okay. when we're walking, right? right? Otherwise we would topple over, right? <laughs> yes. So we need to keep keep the knees under the center of mass. And, and so to do that, we have to angle our, our thigh bones in. You know, that's important. But if you never spend any time walking around on two limbs, if you spend your entire life in a wheelchair, you don't develop that angle to your femur. It is what we call an ontogenetic trait. It's a trait that develops you know, postnatally and only under specific mechanical constraints, right? So you have to be loading your bones in a particular way to cause the stresses that cause cracks in your bones, these microscopic cracks that say, oh, we got to eat this away and we got to put bones somewhere else to balance it out. And wow. that's how that angle happens, right? And bone is so freaking cool. I had no idea. I mean, I, and, and then I am imagining that the muscles adapt to the bones. Correct. Or maybe vice versa, right? Maybe okay. the muscle, maybe muscle force is helping bones change their shape in part, right? Okay. And so um, this led to bigger questions. So Craig's model was fascinating to me because it's low impact exercise. So what if we took mice that have OI and they can't do high impact exercise, but we raise them in an environment where they're loading their bones differently. So their bones are, are going to be subjected to stresses that they're not used to, to fielding. Right. Right. And that's going to cause micro cracks in their bones that are going to need repair. And um, maybe that repair would solidify and make those bones even stronger without risking high impact exercise, right? Just by contracting muscles and okay. balancing over limbs on these fine wires. And it turns out that, um, that we're able to induce changes in bone, in the strength of bone, but in particular, a measure that we call toughness of bone. Um, so toughness of bone has a very specific mechanical definition. And what that refers to is the toughness of a bone is related to its ability to withstand the propagation of a crack that's already formed. So if a crack okay. forms, a tougher bone will keep that crack from going further than a less tough bone, right? A, a less tough bone, would that crack would spread very quickly. Um, we can actually increase the toughness of bone by raising them in these these kinds of environments without subjecting them to high impact exercise. And the effects are very similar to another type of drug that is given for osteoporosis called a selective estrogen receptor modulator or a SERM. Um, SERMs are, are built on estrogen or at least estrogen analogs. And um, because of that, they are a growth hormone. Um, you can't give growth hormones to children who are right. in the best position to strengthen their bones. Um, and OI children are the ones that we would target with something like that. You can't do that. You can't give them that, that drug for several reasons. Um, yeah. You don't know what that's going to do downstream right. for one, but also it's not approved for that. But exercise could be low impact exercise could be. And so the idea was like, what if we could get them onto like high ropes courses that or that were specific um, to, you know, that were, that were safe because they were harnessed in, they couldn't actually damage themselves. And they don't even have to be high ropes. They could be, you know, low ropes courses, just having them have to balance repetitive, you know, repeatedly over their limbs in ways that they're not used to. Could that be effective? We never got to that. We haven't gotten to that stage yet because there are several, you know, most, most animal models of disease are not true to the disease. And so there are several things that that are problematic within that particular model. Um, but the results are promising. Okay. On the but flip side, though, I'm able to still look at the evolutionary adaptation aspects of this because I can look at normal mice. Right. And, uh, and so Craig and I have been collaborating for several years now to try to understand exactly all the changes that are happening um, so that we can then predict what would happen when we start to um, selectively breed um, really great climbers with other really great climbers? Um, can we see changes in, um, you know, genetics and in epigenetics and in measures of strength of bone and muscle and so on and so forth? That, that's fascinating. And I have two questions. Okay. Sure. Okay. One is I'm a little concerned about the mice on, For sure. on the, on the, on the thin wires. 
and I guess it would relate also to the children, but like, so if you have these OI mice and they are raised in a, a, a boreal environment on really thin wires where they have to balance, what if they lose their balance and fall? That's a great question. Um, and we actually have a, a safety net for that. And I don't mean, I don't mean like figuratively, like we actually have a safety net okay. in there. And the bottom of the enclosure is actually flooded with water to okay. prevent them from spending any time on the ground. Cause you know, the water's cold. They don't want to be in there. They want to stay away. Right. Um, there are safe havens in their, um, in their environment. So there are nest sites, there are feeding boxes right. where they can just hang out and lounge, which right. they do frequently, but to get from one to the other, they have to traverse these fine wires, right? I and know. if they fall, they are going to splash down into some water um, and have their cushion, uh, okay. have their fall cushioned by the safety net. Okay. I just thought, what if you're a shitty climber? Like, <laughs> it's surprising they're, very... they're not. Okay. They're really good. They are very, very good. And, you know. I mean, there's always I... going to be that one, right? That's like not as good as somebody else. Um, but Right. Correct. <laughs> um I, whenever I give a talk about this work, I always show videos of, so we take, um, we've done some kinematic analyses. So we're looking at um, sort of how joints are changing, joint um, postures are changing through strides, um, you know, of the gait cycle. And, uh, you know, are they crouching lower to the wires? Are they not? And so on and so forth. I always show video of, of a mouse that's raised in the climbing enclosure and then I'm walking across this fine wire. And then, um, you know, I also show a video of one that has not, right? And it's like the one that has not, you know, it's only like an inch off the ground or two inches off the ground. For sure. um, but it's like underneath it and it's like, you know, scurrying <laughs> along and holding on for dear life, right? I mean, and it's only going like four, four centimeters, you know, or, you know, I'm sorry, 10 centimeters or so, right? It's not going very far. Right. Um, but it's, you know, it's hilarious to watch it. And then you put the climber in, right? And they start to use their tails. They like flick their tails back and forth to balance, oh, which yes. is how I... This is how I got roped into this to begin with, right? Craig reached out to me and said, hey, you know a thing or two about tails? Yeah. Let's look at these tails. Look at this weird thing they're doing. And it turns out that they actually have more robust musculature on the lateral sides of their tails and the outer sides of their tails. And so um, that's helping that flicking. And that re that results actually in changes in bone shape as well, it appears. That's fascinating. Okay. I know I keep saying that, that that's fascinating, um, <laughs> but it is. And I, now I want to see a, pic, a video of, of a mouse who, who is raised as a climber and then a mouse that has not been raised as a climber and seems like that could be on a TikTok loop actually. But anyway, uh, so the other question I had related to the toughness of bones. Sure. So it occurred to me uh, to ask, you said like if there's a crack, a fracture in the bone and the toughness is related to whether or not it propagates or so the, to whether or not right. a crack spreads. Sure. Does it matter where a crack happens on a bone, regardless of its toughness and whether or not it would propagate? Is there like a weak point of a bone? Like Oh, sure. Oh, okay. sure. Yeah. yeah. So most of our bones are loaded in bending which means that, you know, we're, um, we're bending from one end of the bone to the other end of the bone. So our femur, right. The, the place where it is strongest is going to be right at the middle of the shaft of the bone, because okay. that's where the forces are going to be highest. Okay. Right. And so, you know, a crack there would potentially spread faster than a crack at either end, because the amount of stress that that bone is under is higher in the center at that mid shaft than it is at either end. Understood. Okay. Excellent. It's a great it's, question though. So it, it looks like we can learn a lot about individuals, uh, based on the bones, what happens to the bones. Um, we can, there's a, there's one work you did and, and the, on groundhogs. Mm, so sure. I was wondering if we could talk about them for a minute, because as you know, uh, and when I was on your podcast, we talked about prairie dogs for sure. And like groundhogs, prairie dogs are incredible diggers they dig their burrows and I've always been amazed by this because they're digging through what felt like rock. Uh, so when I was in Flagstaff, uh, I mean, uh, you know, a prairie dog colony got flooded. It was like weird, uh, one weird winter, like two and a half feet of rain fell. They were hibernating, mm -hmm. no chance of survival. They were underwater for two months and I thought, well, let me dig up the burrows and see, you know, what their burrow system looks like. And, uh, well, let's see, after about uh, two feet with a pickaxe, I hit 
what felt like concrete. And I was just like, Ugh, you know, vibrated back. Yeah, sure. Being the persistent scientist that I am, I kept hitting with the pickaxe until I injured myself. And then I had to rent a backhoe. <laughs> mm-hmm. I needed a backhoe to go four and a half feet deep. And sure. they used their front feet. Mm-hmm. And so whether it's, it's, it's groundhogs or prairie dogs or badgers, you know, how, how much force is needed on these front legs to do that kind of job? And what makes that like, what is special about the muscle architecture mm-hmm. or, you know, because I can't, I can't dig through much, you know, even a garden with my hands uh, before every muscle in my fingers and forearm is sore and I can't move. So what's going on there. That's so special. Sure. That's a great question. Um, so the animals that you're referring to are all um, considered to have what we call fossorial locomotion, right? Meaning that they dig quite a bit not surprisingly, um, based on your description. Um, And what sort of unites a lot of them are shapes of their forelimbs. Um, So they've got really robust attachment sites for muscles, which allow the muscle bellies to be sort of larger in cross-section than they are in in closely related non-fossorial mammals. Um, And so that those changes in the attachment sites for muscles, and then um, the lengths of the the bones that they're moving, um, which are shortened in fossorial animals, um, allows uh, different mechanical advantages of those muscles to take advantage of um, of the sort of ends of those digits. Right? They have um, what are called ungual phalanges or um, or claws, yes. and those claws are incredibly sharp. And um, you know the different leverages that muscles have um, in fossorial animals allows those sharp claws to be really efficient shovels. So to answer your question about how much force is required, um, that's going to be dependent on the substrate. What are they digging through? Right. Uh, and what we've learned from chewing, um, which I suspect also applies in a similar way, it's just a hypothesis that it would apply in a similar way to digging is that, you know, with successive strokes of chewing, we know that our food is being broken down and, um, our brain actually modulates how much force our muscles produce so that we don't crack our teeth. Right. Yeah. Um, Right. So, you know, we bite down that first bite. There's more force that's put into that than, um, than successive bites, right. It's modulated by the brainstem. And I suspect something similar is happening with, with the claws of fossorial mammals. You know, you don't want to be scraping, like say you get, you know, to something that's even, you know, tougher uh, than, than what you were digging you know, in before, well, you're going to need to ramp up. And if you were using all of the force to begin with on the stuff that wasn't quite as much, you're not going to have that much more efficiency, right? Not going to be able to sort of take it to the next level, next gear, um, sort of pull that through. What's interesting about the marmot study that you're referring to um, is that we were pulled into that study because we had some money from the National Institutes of Health to look at fiber architecture in rats that have chronic kidney disease. Um, because we were interested in sort of how muscle wasting happens in that, um, in that disease. And it's a pretty common thing. Okay. Um, and, and actually the lab we were working with studies bone loss in chronic kidney disease, which is another really big phenotype that most people don't know about. Like if you have chronic kidney disease, you're going to lose bone pretty rapidly. And the, the standard treatments are to use again, these osteoporosis drugs. Wow. So we were interested in sort of how can we, how can we target muscle, which we know is wasting to, to enhance bone mechanical properties, right? Make them stronger, make them tougher, whatever. And that was our first foray into that. So because we had, um, we had some personnel who had come from the lab that was driving the study to be my laboratory tech, we got roped into doing that. We got pulled into roped is not right. The right word that suggests a negative kind of thing. We got invited and we were really excited to be part of it um, to, you know, contribute to that manuscript. And what we did uh, was a lot of the fiber architecture work and then the fiber typing work. And so um, what do I mean by fiber architecture? I was going to say, do you mean like muscle, like myosin fibers? So we're not talking about myosin or actin itself. We're talking about sort of the aggregation of the two into fibers of the muscle. Um, And so those are called fibrils. And uh, together, um, you know, a bunch of fibrils come together to form a fiber. And, And it's those fibers that are really driving the function of muscles. So how a muscle fiber attaches to the center 
lateral tendon running within a muscle, um, which all muscles have, affects how much force it can produce, how much speed of contraction it can produce, and several other things. And so um, what's important to know is that um, you know some muscles are, are really architecturally best suited to, to be used to, you know, power through something right there, really powerful muscles. Those muscles tend to be unable to contract quickly. And this is outside of the discussion of fast twitch and slow twitch muscle types. Darn. I um, thought I was on to, I was, I was, I'm like, Oh, do you mean they twitch slowly? <laughs> right. So we can talk about that again in, in just a second, because that's a different layer of complexity to these muscles. But just whether or not they're attaching at an angle or they're running, these fibers are running the length of the muscle and just attaching to tendon on it on the very ends, that has a profound difference in what is possible. Um, and so, so the marmots have highly what we call pinnate muscles, in, especially in their digging, um, digging limbs. And pinnation um, means that there are a lot of fibers that are short and att attaching at an angle relative to that, um, to that central tendon. And that allows more, um, what are called sarcomeres, which are the actual units of contraction in a muscle, right? And they're made up of myosin, actin, and several other compounds as well. But myosin and actin are the ones that people have really heard of. Yes. Um, you know, a sarcomere can shorten, um, at a particular, a particular length. Um, and so the more, uh, the more sarcomeres you can pack into a small region, the more shortening you're going to have in that specific area. But it doesn't mean that it's going to be fast, right? It means it's going to be very, um, very powerful. Um, if you have sarcomeres in series, right? So you put them end to end, you're going to get a huge range of motion for a muscle because every little sarcomere can only shorten a small amount. But when you put them all together, you can have a huge shortening of that muscle, right? that's going to tend to happen very quickly, but without a whole lot of force, relatively speaking. And so muscles are usually thought to be um, architecturally best suited to one or the other, either speed of contraction or muscle force. All of that is to say that uh, the, mar the marmots had um, muscles that were really architecturally best suited for very powerful movements but not necessarily for fast movements, but yeah. that's maybe not surprising, right? I mean, you don't need to be particularly fast. You need to be efficient when you're yes. digging through those things, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, and, and even when you dig, you know, I mean, the, for the prey ducks, their burrows uh, last uh, hundreds of years. I mean, they, they, once it, there's a burrow there, they don't like just dig another one for no reason. They work on the one that's existing and they're constantly maintaining them. But, um, it's, it, you know, and they walk like, uh, and I, I, and I'm wondering if, if the architecture of where the muscles attach and how they attach influences the way that they walk. A lot of these animals walk really square shouldered. They look like, you know, linebackers kind of mm. in the way that they, they move. And I've noticed this with badgers. Also the wombat is another one that's just like incredibly strong, but not particularly fast moving. They can basically bulldoze through just about anything. You know, what I love about the way that you explain all of these things, and I'm going to shout out to Dr. Colombo, my anatomy and physiology professor. I tried, I tried, I thought I had it with the myosin. <laughs> <laughs> and that was many, many moons ago um, that I took him for anatomy and physiology one and two. And, you know, I, and I often, I'm always fascinated with bones. I, now you've, you've sparked a fascination with muscles and how they interact together never really thought about it. And in my former life, I, I would have been maybe a forensic anthropologist, you know, solving mm -hmm. crimes because of everything we can learn about bones. Um, uh, at least the bones for solving crimes, there might be tissue left, but it depends on how long a body's been there. But anyway, um, what I love about the way that you talk about this is, is it's really easy to understand. It's really accessible. And we both have a passion for science communication. Otherwise, you mm -hmm. wouldn't be hosting a podcast and I wouldn't be hosting a podcast. So we clearly do. Um, Guilty. And, and yours is Science Night. It's an awesome podcast that everyone should add to the list. How did you, have you always been interested in making 
the science that you do accessible to the general public or did something happen that, that kind of moved you in that direction? Well, so I already kind of told the story about um, being an anthropology graduate student and being unable to communicate with people in my same discipline because they were in one of the other subspecialties that, that one, didn't interest me as much and two, had a completely different lexicon, right? Yeah. So I recognized a communication problem early on in my graduate career, but um, because I was interested in human evolution, I also was bitten with the science outreach bug very early on. Um, you know, we're as an anthropology grad student, I was on the front lines of trying to teach the importance of evolution in a very conservative state. You know, I was in Missouri at the time. Um, and so we were always hosting um, events at schools or, you know, doing tours of the lab and, and so on. And then that continued as a PhD student as well um, when I moved to Baltimore. And uh, I got involved in the Baltimore County Public School um, evolution curriculum reform project, um, which was really interesting to, to be involved in um, and made me realize that, you know, there are very few people who have a true understanding of how science works. And because of that, um, it's important to, to help the, the general public understand that science is a process and that science is never settled. In fact, that is intentional. A new answer to an old question um, that can be, you know, validated and repeated is going to move the needle um, because scientists understand that science is constantly changing um, its sort of understanding based on better information. Yeah. And it's not so, perfect. <laughs> correct. It's not a, perfect. <laughs> definitely not perfect. Um, and that's because science is done by people who are not perfect. And, um, and I think that's really what, what bit me when it comes to the science communication bug. It's, I really like hearing about what, what, you know, why people got interested in what they do, what it is that, that they're passionate about and, and why does it still, you know, make them excited to talk about. Um, I don't get to talk about bones nearly as much as I would like to. Um, and so it's been a real treat today. And yes. I imagine that you could probably feel the energy, right? Absolutely. A little bit. But I just think it's, I think bone and muscle are some of the coolest things on the planet. Um, yeah. uh, that's, you know, one of the things that makes me uniquely me. Right. Um, but Although you've inspired me to think differently about, I learned so much from this conversation and, you know, I, I rarely have appreciated my bones as much as my muscles. And now it's, I think I have to give a little thank you to my bones. Oh, well, my, <laughs> I am really honored to have been a uh, part of that inspiration. Yes. Um, yes. So I'm glad, I'm glad. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, the point is, you know, like people can get really excited about what they work on or what, what, they're passionate about. So giving them the opportunity to do that allows them to be seen as people to people, the public who typically don't get an opportunity to interact with a scientist in their science, right? I mean, we all probably know a scientist somewhere. We just may not know that they're a scientist. Yeah. We might only know them as Joe, the neighbor, right? And not, oh, that's Joe, the neighbor who happens to also be an executive at a major pharmaceutical company and runs a biochemistry lab, right? Yeah. Oh, I bet that I bet that person might have some insight into the opioid crisis. I'd be interesting to talk to them, right? Or I bet that person could tell me a little bit about how mRNA vaccines work. Right. Um, we have these people all around us, but many of us don't know that we do. And so we only know them as people. We don't know them as people who are also scientists. And that's one of the things that... that um, I am most passionate about in science communication is allowing scientists to be their nerdy selves. Cause like we're, we're, we're fun people, right? <laughs> right. Um, but it's more fun to, to find out when we're not so fun, right? Like, you know, what is it that's driving us? And, and, and what is it that, that, what quirk is it that you have that, that someone else might out be able to say, you know, Oh, I have that quirk too. I didn't realize that like, yeah. you know, yeah. hey, it's just a regular old person. Well, and, you know, and I'm wondering if you're finding, and this is a, I know you're busy, so I, I this will be my last question, I promise. Um, you know, when I first got started, you know, in science communication back in, gosh, 2014 now, you know, the, the attitude by other scientists was a little like, oh, well, good luck in your new career. Mm, I, yeah. I didn't change careers, actually. <laughs> um, but do you think that, this is changing and that scientists like us that enjoy this type of expression of science and, and providing an avenue for other scientists to, 
to, to, to talk about themselves and, and their work in a less formal way is being more valued by our peers? I would like to think so. Um, I think one thing we have learned over the last, you know, two calendar years, now we're into our third calendar year of this pandemic, is that without expert voices out there to be able to help um, explain complicated information to the general public, there's a vacuum that's filled by folks who don't know what they're talking about. And you know, I'm not saying that you have to be a credentialed scientist to, to be able to explain science to the general public. But the problem is, when we don't have those expert voices out there, in addition to the workforce that's out there doing science communication without, um, you know, without the credentials of being a, a principal investigator in a research lab that's actual, you know, actually doing cutting edge funded research, um, is that we have we have small pieces of inaccuracies that then get manifested down the road um, that could be easily corrected with expert voices. Similarly, it could be destroyed and blown up by expert voices, right? So, you know, it's important to understand that just because someone is an expert doesn't mean they're good at communicating to those who don't have the same language. And so, um, so we spent a lot of time here at Indiana University, you know, trying to train the next generation of scientists to be both prolific and proficient at the bench or at, you know, the bedside, but yeah. also to be really effective at communicating to a range of audiences from specialists to non-specialists. And so we have a graduate minor here at Indiana University that was developed um, with help um, or assistance from the Alda Center at Sunnybrook, um, where we, we train all of our biomedical research graduate students in ways to communicate effectively with a non-specialist audience. And that's important. Um, yeah. We have them all come through here, but then if they want to get um, more training, we have a whole suite, a uh, whole curriculum that they can take um, that will allow them to get more proficient at um, communicating via um, media, different media, right? So yeah. through audiovisual stuff or writing um, for the public or being involved in radio, right? There are all yeah. sorts of things that they can do. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I, I would love to, to do that for University of Arizona. I think it's so important. Um, and, and I have a special place in my heart for the Aldo Center. I was a graduate at Stony Brook University. And, and uh, just I think the year after I got my PhD, Alan Aldo set up that center and started uh, personally training the first mm -hmm. group of grad students. And I am an Alda fellow. And so we, we share that in common. So thank you so much, Jason. Everybody, Jason Oregon, please check out Science Night, his podcast. It's wonderful, not just because I was on it, too, but... Um, but it's a great episode. And so if you want to hear a great conversation with Dr. Jen Verdelin, you can find it right there or right here. That's right. And we will um, hopefully be working on, so, you know, revealing the whale belly button mystery in a future episode. I hope so. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me, Jen. Well, that was fun. And you got to be sure to check out Science Night podcast. You can find links to the podcast on the show notes. And I just want to close with, you know, the human body contains sometimes 206 bones and sometimes 208. And that's because there's this small bone that's located behind the knee. It's in a tendon and it's called the fabella. What's interesting about the fabella is that it was sort of lost for a while, meaning that the percentage of people where this bone was found was pretty low. And... Now, what we're finding is that the frequency of this bone in the knee is making a comeback, and nobody really knows why. In the past 150 years, from 1918 to 2018, how, how much more common has it become? Three times more common. So before 1918, it was found in just 11% of the world's population. But as of 2018, that number jumped to 39% of people. Now, nobody really knows why. The interesting thing is we still don't actually even know what this little bone does. In old world monkeys, it, it seems to play some kind of role in how the knee muscle works. And this bone disappeared long before we came along. It started disappearing even in the great apes and the ancestors of the great apes. 
Of course, bones just don't exist for no reason at all, so it has to have some kind of function. One idea is that it might help reduce friction with the tendons or redirect muscle forces or even increase the mechanical force of the muscle that it's involved with. While we're not entirely sure what it does, what we do know is that a lot of us are getting this little bone back. The fascination with bones just keeps going. All right. Thanks for listening. Again, you can check out the show notes on jenniferverdelin.com or on Wild Connection, the podcast hosted by Podbean. There you'll find links to keep up with our guest, Dr. Jason Organ, and also ways to keep up with me and the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe and please give it a like or a review so that other people can find it too. Thanks for listening.